0: today 's story we 're walking through the book of Exodus. This is week number three if you haven 't done the introduction um, here 's a little uh, diagram there that 's also on Instagram. You could find that diagram that talks about how God moves us out of one thing and he wants because He wants to move us into something else, so freedom from is part of it, but it's really freedom for something else. We talked about he's moving in Exodus. We see the people of God out of bondage and into, not freedom, but worship. So freedom for worship. And so you can go back and watch that introduction. It'll help make sense of all the other sermons because that's the big framework. Um, so I encourage you to do that. But we're, we're now into the second sort of big movement in the book of Exodus as we look at Moses, the great prophet of Israel, his story, how he got going. Last week we looked at how he was saved um, in a very miraculous way by God as his mother placed him in the Nile River in something of an ark and he was rescued and brought into uh, the Pharaoh's family by the princess who found his basket floating down the river and uh, how ironic it was that Because Pharaoh was trying to kill all the newborns, Moses' mother had to send him down the river, and actually God now moves a Hebrew, an Israelite, into the royal family. And so that's where uh, we left off last week. And what we'll see today um, is that Moses again finds himself in a place he never expected to be. And so uh, that's sort of my introduction question to you. Have you ever found yourself in a place that you never expected to be? Uh, something of a rhetorical question. I think most of us have experienced that. I experienced it just two nights ago. I was uh, with my boys. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, and we were playing a game of hide-and-go-seek. You ever heard of this game? Great game. I highly recommend it. And um, uh, it's my turn to hide. Grayson, count to 30, I said. you got to give him 30 because his counting goes so fast that you have no time to hide. And so I run off into uh, our office room, and we have a big table, actually Kate Spencer's table. She gave us her dinner table. We use that as a a desk. And uh, I crawl under this pretty big table. I'm a pretty big guy, and I'm trying to hide. And, you know, I'm I'm laying on my side on the ground, and my neck's getting tired. And then I I noticed if I just inch this way a little bit, there is uh, sort of something to lay my head against. And I say, great, because Grayson's having trouble finding me It's such a good hiding spot. And then And then... (laughs) And I'm laying my head against this hard plastic thing, and I'm I'm curious. I'm like, what exactly is that? And then Grayson ends up finding me, turns on the light, and I'm trying to get out. And as I'm getting out, I realize that I've been, for several minutes now, laying my head against Owen's uh, potty training toilet (laughs) with my head, like, cuddled into (laughs) the seat. And I found myself in a place I never expected to be on a Thursday night, and uh, that's okay. And this is a little similar to what Moses goes through. If you had asked him, he's he's been raised in the royal family. He's had every opportunity and privilege you could possibly have. Egypt is the greatest empire that the world has seen to this point in history. You have to understand that. It is the greatest, most advanced, best educated empire that the world has ever seen. And Moses is a part of the royal court. And by the end of our story today, we'll see Moses finds himself living with nomads in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, in the desert, with traders, a nomadic people living in tents. He never expected to be there, but all the while, God is very much involved. And a part of this plan. So if you've got a Bible, would you grab it and open to Exodus chapter 2? And we're just going to read part of that story here today. Um, you can Google Exodus 2. It's the second book in the Bible. Um, we talked about how Genesis, the first book of the Bible, is, a, is actually kind of like a prelude to Exodus. Because it's an Exodus that we see God become very um, personal and create a nation that he'll use then to bless all other nations. And so, this is really in the book of five, the Pentateuch, also known as the Torah, Exodus is really where the story gets started about God creating this people that he'll then use to save and bless the rest of the world. And so, uh, Exodus chapter two, starting in verse 11. Remember, the last phrase that we have here, you can just look in in verse 10, is when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. That's Moses' mother, who was actually hired to be the wet nurse for his own son and got paid. And then when he was probably about four years old and was done nursing and needing breast milk, she then brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, who adopted Moses into her family. And the princess names him Moses, and it says, because... She said, I drew him out of the water. And so that's a word that sounds like drawing out, sounds like Moses. And so she gives him that name because she found him in the Nile River. Okay, so then, right after that, this is a problem with the text. It moves pretty quickly. Verse 11 says, then one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. Hey, Josh, could you give me a little, I'm getting a little echo here in my ears. Um, Then one day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. Now, the people he's talking about here are the Hebrew people. He comes to find out, uh, probably knew all along that he was not an Egyptian, but actually a Hebrew, and the Hebrew people were the slave class. They were used by Pharaoh to build all of his great architectural um, wonders, and Moses probably knew this all along. It seems that he had something of a relationship with um, both his mother and father and his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron. We, we see that because later in the story, God says, I'm going to send your brother Aaron to meet you halfway in the desert, and uh, he doesn't need to explain who Aaron is. He already knows that that's his brother, and so he probably had a relationship, but he would kind of kept his distance and lived as an Egyptian in the royal court. Now, if you're a fan of movies, uh, you realize that uh, between verses 10 and verses 11, Hollywood likes to put a ton of information. We don't have it. We literally don't know anything about his growing up, but all the movies that you might see, The Ten Commandments, uh, uh, Exodus, God and Kings by Ridley Scott, or even uh, the great animated film, The prince of Egypt, they all like to fill that in with what it might have been like for Moses to grow up in the royal family. And so we don't know any of that. So all that's speculation and it's fun, but we don't know any of that. We just go straight to one day when Moses was grown up. He went out and he looked and he saw and something changed in his heart. He saw for the first time, he's probably 40 years old at this point, based on the other text that we have that talks about how long he was in Egypt before he left. 40 years old and he's enjoyed the life of royalty all 40 of those years. So if, if you're thinking, man, I've wasted all my time. I, I can't be used by God anymore. Moses didn't wake up to the fact that his people were enslaved until he was 40 years old. But he woke up and he sees them in a new way and he sees their burdens. And then what does the text say? What does he do? So Moses saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. One of his people. Verse 12. He looked this way, and he looked that way. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. That means he killed him and hid him in the sand. Wow. Okay, so let's pause here for a second. Actually, just last night, watched The Prince of Egypt with my boys. My wife, Allie, is at the hospital working. I said, we need to have a movie night, sermon prep, two in one. And uh, <laughs> I hadn't watched it in some time, But I've seen it before, I watched it again, great movie, Um, if you haven't seen it. I know Jordan Lake loves Prince of Egypt, he told me that. Great movie, Um, but they get it wrong. In that movie, Moses gets enraged and he loses his temper and he accidentally knocks uh, Egyptian slave taskmaster with a whip off of a high rise, he dies, sort of an accident. Look at the text, that's not what's happening here. Moses looks one way and looks another way. What? Premeditation. He's so enraged when he sees the injustice being given towards his people that he premeditates a plan to murder an evil, sinful Egyptian. Probably someone who was beating his workers. Now, why do I bring that up? This is legit. Like, Moses has real anger, his anger leads him to do what what we probably think in our mind is justified in some ways, but it's very much premeditated. He thinks about what he's doing, and then he tries to hide what he's done in secret. Now, in that uh, that other way of thinking, like the prince of Egypt, um, it sort of softens the blow of what... Moses has done. And, and by the way, I wanted to say this. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt, Moses looks exactly like our very own DJ Morgan. you guys know DJ Morgan? He looks just like DJ Morgan, which would make, in that movie, there's a great depiction of Zipporah, Moses' wife. That'd make that Demi Morgan, and the personality's pretty good there. So watch that movie, DJ Morgan. That's exactly what he looks like. He's one of our drummers. You'd recognize him just like um, DJ. But anyhow, I digress. Um, the, the thing is that Moses clearly here commits sin, a sin that he'll later write about in this book in the Ten Commandments, that thou shalt not murder. And Moses commits and breaks that law of God. And he knows it. He already knows it. It's already written on his heart before it's ever written on the tablet. He knows it's wrong, and that's why he hides the body. But yet there's something about it that feels just. Now, now here, here's what I, I want us to focus on. Um, it's, it's almost like the Batman dilemma, right? The Dark Knight. Here's a man with, with so much power, um, so much wisdom, so much education, so, so many financial resources. He sees injustice and his heart tells him he must do something about it. But he wonders, how can I free my people? And here's his first best attempt. He's just going to start picking them off, I guess, one by one. And so there's something very noble, in a sense, about someone who is in the royal class choosing to stick up for someone who is less than second class, almost half human. That's how the Egyptians would have thought about the Hebrews. But this isn't the way of God. This is seeking justice in an unjust way. And God never, ever asks us to do that, to seek justice in an unjust way. The opposite is to wait for God, wait for his direction, which is, of course, very hard to do, particularly when you have control issues. Now, my guess would be, many of us in this room have control issues. If you're educated, elite, wealthy, and you've always gotten what you want, you tend to have control issues, which is the vast majority of those of us at Sedaris, myself included. This is what I would call a source idol. Control is a source idol, meaning it bubbles up to the surface in a lot of different ways, different for all of us. But it's a source idol, meaning that a lot of the things that we end up worshiping or the ways that we live our life, the things that we believe to be very important, are actually rooted in this source idol, which is the idol of control, meaning I want, I hope you're feeling this, I, I, I want to know what's going to happen. I, I want to be the one that gets to act first. I don't want to wait. That's me. <laughs> control is one of my idols. I love to be in the know. I love to get to act first rather than react. And Moses is no different and you can understand it. He's had always had control. Since he's been in Pharaoh's court, he can go anywhere. People know who he is. He seems to have had a great reputation amongst the people. And he's a prince. So he gets what he wants. And of course, it turns into an idol for him. Control. So we can relate here. We, we know. When we see injustice, we want to take control. We want to be the ones to move forward. Because to not, it, is, it, it presses on us in such an existential way that we, we feel helpless, we feel inadequate, we we feel all the things that Moses felt. And it usually leads, at least for me, to rage when I feel out of control. Moses is us. And he takes matters into his own hands, which we can understand. Now, um, as I was reading this, I'm also reading on the side a book called Dostoevsky, or The Gospel in Dostoevsky. You know who Dostoevsky is? He is a Russian novelist from the 19th century. So he wrote most of his famous novels in like the 1860s, 1850s. He wrote Crime and Punishment, The Brothers Karamazov, um, The Idiot, which I'll talk about here in just a second. And um, he's just sort of one of the greatest novelists of of all time. And in this one book uh, called The Idiot, um, I was reading a passage from that book in my little, it's sort of a sampler, the gospel in Dostoevsky, and he was a Christian, and um, there's this character, the main character in the book The Idiot is uh, a prince named prince, prince Mishkin, and Prince Mishkin actually reminded me a lot of Moses. So Prince Mishkin... Um, He sort of has an interesting upbringing, but it turns out he's a part of the royal family and and he is sort of an embodiment of what a perfectly moral man might be. And he's just a good, compassionate, kind-hearted man. He doesn't see class. He treats everybody the same. And the reason the book's called The Idiot is because uh, his friends who are from the upper elite classes of uh, Russia, St. Petersburg, Moscow, um, they sort of look at him and his naive sort of goodness and they call him an idiot because he doesn't quite understand the way the world works. But he always acts truthfully, he always speaks the truth, Um, there's no pretense in him and so he's just this picture of this moral, good man, yet... Naive. So his friends call him an idiot. Now, this reminded me of Moses. A good man. A just man. A powerful, ruling class elite with resources, education, ideas, and the impetus to make change. But yet, what he does here is kind of idiotic. He murders a taskmaster. <laughs> he murders a taskmaster. Somebody's at the back door. He murders a taskmaster and tries to hide it in the sand. What is he doing? So for Prince Mishkin, he doesn't and sort of the tragedy of the book. It doesn't end up well for him. Like you think it should because he always acts morally and just. He always says what needs to be said. He always sticks up for people that need to be advocated for. And yet in the end, things don't turn out well for Prince Michigan and they don't turn out for anyone in his, well, for anyone in his sphere of influence. In some ways he accomplishes nothing in his life. And so I, I was reading about this and thinking about this. And um, I was just realizing this is an example of Moses' story. You get to this part of the story, and, and if anybody could, could make change, it's somebody who got inserted into the royal family with, with all sorts of power and education and ideas and political influence, and yet Moses fails. He fails at saving his people. He fails miserably. Because look at what happens next. Verse 13. He hides them in the sand and then it says, When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong. So these two slaves are fighting. And Moses says to them, Why do you strike your companion? Hebrew on Hebrew crime, why are you doing it? And the slave answers and says, who made you prince and judge over us? This is a bit of literary forecasting because Moses does end up becoming prince and judge, but at this moment, we can't read ahead, he's not. And then the slave says to him, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? They know about it. His, His plan to hide the body didn't work. And then Moses was afraid, it says, and he thought, Surely this thing is known. My sin is exposed. And sure enough, verse 15 when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Let's pause there. So Moses fails. He, he has this great heart for justice, this great compassion for his people. This is, this is actually the way Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, talking about Moses, says it. Hebrews 11 says this. Just listen. We don't have this on the screen for you. It says this. By faith... This is in the great hall of fame of faith. Moses is in the hall of fame. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. What a noble, good Man, and he fails miserably to be the Messiah of his people, the Savior of his people. Now, I can really relate to this story because about 60 to 70% of seminarians that's people who go to study theology in seminaries, which I did. Um, I had started my career in accounting, and I was very happy to make a lot of money and buy a boat and and go down that path, and there's nothing wrong with that, and I was loving it, and then God radically called me out of that and threw me back into school, and I was in seminary, and I was totally out of my league. I had no idea because I'd only studied accounting at a... uh, big state universities, so they don't even make you take any of the liberal arts stuff. It's, you know, good and bad. And so I had n- no way of en- entering into this stuff. But what I did have is what, 60 to 70% of seminarians had a messianic complex. <laughs> okay, so most people that go to seminary think they're the ones that are going to save the world. And uh, I, I was no different. In fact, um, when I, I, I started at one school in Texas, because I was living in Texas at the time, and I transferred to Denver Seminary... And, and and part of that transition process, I was I was very ambitious at the time. Uh, I was looking into other seminaries because my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, Allie, was looking at nursing schools in Denver. And so I called Denver Seminary, and I said, I need to talk to the president. <laughs> like, who, who? They're like, excuse me, who who are you again? I said, I'm Davey Vanger. I need to talk to the president. And they're like, um... But I put you on a quick hold. So they put me on a quick hold. They came back to the phone. They said, "Okay, let's schedule an appointment." I said, "Oh, great." So I talked to the president, uh, Dr. Mark Young. He would actually been a professor for decade, a de- over a decade, at the school I was currently at. So I wanted to hear what he had to say. He's the new president at Denver Seminary. I got to talk to him on the phone. He says, "Come on up." Um, and so I decided to transfer there. I, I went to Denver Seminary and uh, I, e- I emailed President Young. The first, I said, "President Young, I know you've been waiting for this. I'm on campus." I'm sure you want to get together. He's like, sure. <laughs> Come on by my office. So I just get up a, a meeting, and I sit there, and um, believe it or not, it's the last time I got invited to his office, and you'll see why in a second. And so I'm sitting there talking to the president of Denver Seminary. He says, okay, uh, Mr. Uh, Evanger, uh, wh- what do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish? Why why you in seminary? And I said to him, I said, well, this might sound a little arrogant, but my goal is to ask the entire country to consider Jesus. <laughs> that's what I said to him. I said, every single person, I feel like it's my job to ask them to consider Jesus. And he looks at me, you know, surprised in the first overambitious seminarian that's walked into his office. He said, good luck with that. <laughs> I'm sure you'll do great. And um, he never invited me back. But uh, my point in sharing that story is, this is what Moses was. He He fully believed that he could save his people, and he was acting with a righteous heart, and he failed miserably. Why is that? Why is that? I mean, he failed so bad. Did you see that in the text? That the slave people... Who he is trying to help, who he is one of, seem to be the ones that turn him in. You see that? They're the ones who rat him out and say, we knew who killed that guy. It was our guy Moses. Think of the failure of that. The people he's trying to save are the people who turn him in. Well, some of your minds are going all the way to the New Testament when the same thing happens to Jesus. But you see, Jesus is different, but he's similar. Jesus knew that he was just doing the will of the Father. Moses thought he had to do it himself. But both get sold out by their friends, by their people. So what happens? Well, Moses flees. Pharaoh is unable to find him and... Execute him for his crime. He, he, he may have in some ways been a problem to Pharaoh. We don't know why Pharaoh is so quick to kill someone in his own court. Maybe he's been looking for a reason to get rid of Moses because he sees the potential here for Moses to gain political power. So we don't know, but Moses flees and escapes, and it says he fled from Pharaoh. Now what you should read when you hear fled, because you don't know the rest of the story yet, is... He taps out. I tried to help my people. I failed. It's over for me. Of course, we know the rest of the story because we're reading about him. Thousands of years later, God wasn't done with him, but God needed to do something with him to prepare him and make him ready to then be God's tool in the freeing and rescue of his people. And God needs to do what? Remember our, our graph? He needs to move him out of Egypt and into the wilderness before he can move him back in to this role as the rescuer, the great prophet of the new nation of Israel. So God's consistent with his plan here. He needs to do it with Moses. All the seminarians who never figure out that they're not going to be the ones to ask the entire country to consider Jesus If they don't ever figure that out, they burn out. They're useless to God because their heart is prideful and they have a control issue. But God can, in his grace, and he's done it for me, stripped away that idol. I mean, it's still being stripped away. It's not like these things go away and they never flare up. But he has helped me to realize that if it's one or two people that want to hear and consider Jesus, It's a great gift and an honor to get to be a part of that process. And we'll let God, we'll wait for God to give us the next instruction. So Moses must be taken into the wilderness. Here is our theme again. God utilizing Moses' sinful agency in murdering a man. God uses actually that sinful agency to be the thing to move Moses out of a situation in which he couldn't become what he needed to be, the rescuer. And in our minds, we're thinking, that seems like a terrible plan, God. Keep him in the royal courts. Let him work from within the system, just like the midwives did. But, but Moses is called to a different thing than the midwives. Midwives were frustrating sin. Moses is actually going to rip the people out of sin. A different task. And so he'll need a different plan. And, and, and it seems weird, but God has to move him out of that position of power so that he might become Moses' power. You see that? So he's in the wilderness. And again, we just sort of fly by this in the text. But, but I mean, it's a long walk <laughs> from the royal palace of Egypt all the way to the land of Midian. And in fact, he would have had to walk the walk that he will later walk with maybe a million people following him. Isn't that interesting? That God took Moses on the same route to get from Egypt to the wilderness as God will do again some years later. But this time, Moses knows where he's going because God's already taken him there. You see, it's very hard to lead people if you've never been led. It's very hard to lead people if you haven't been through the things that they will have to go through. So God takes him on this, what would have been a death-defying trip through the wilderness Until he lands in in this place that the Bible calls Midian. Which would have been probably one of many nomadic people, groups, tribes in the land of Midian. Living in tents, trading. They might have been metal workers. And and Moses stumbles upon them. But he's got to go through the wilderness. Now we see this theme again and again, right? When Jesus starts his ministry, Jesus will actually voluntarily go into the wilderness for 40 days. I think that's in part because that's how God prepared Moses. And Jesus is the new, greater Moses. Now, unlike Moses, Jesus chose to go into the wilderness. He did not ha- he, he, God did not force him into the wilderness, but Jesus chose to go into the wilderness so that his relationship with the Father might deepen to a place where he knew it needed to be as a man. Jesus is the God-man. But as the man part of Jesus, he needed that time where everything is stripped away from him, where he's fasted and he's hungry and he's tempted by the devil, and yet he still chooses the Father's will for his life. So Jesus needed that in preparation for his ministry, and Moses needed it in preparation for what God would do next. Of course, Moses doesn't know that at the time. Okay, so I don't know how long it took Moses to get all the way to Midian. We just sort of get there. But now let's pick up the text in verse 16. And after this grueling, terrific, or terrific, terrifying walk through the wilderness. We don't know if he had a camel or, or a dunk. We don't know what. But he somehow makes it. Surely God giving him what he needed along the way. And now in verse 16 it says this. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. So here you have this group of uh, young ladies, presumably, um, who are doing their father's work, who was himself, as we'll see later, uh, he is a priest of Midian, so probably a pretty high-ranking part of this nomadic tribe. And his daughters are out there feeding uh, the sheep getting them water. And and wells would have been sort of like the central hub. All roads would have led to wells, so travelers would stop at the well. And so they're out there, and verse 17 says, the shepherds came, these are different shepherds, came and drove them away. That's the seven daughters. They basically come up, and remember we talked about this during Advent, shepherds were some bad dudes. There There were some seriously rugged Usually criminal type people because their job was not that nice. They're not sitting at a desk, they're sitting out in the fields with their sheep. And so they tended to be pretty rough and cruel and they come and they take advantage of these women and they cut in line and they drive them away. And Moses sees that and the same Moses, who's a righteous, just man, says that's not right. So he's still got that bent in him. And what does he do? Um, Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Again, that's all the detail we get. (laughs) He stood up, so he's probably pretty tired. He had stopped at the well. He sees this happening. He stood up, mustered the strength, and somehow drives away this group of shepherds. Like I said, Moses is a bad man. Okay? Like one dude against this whole group of dudes, and before he looked like he was about to die because <laughs> he just walked through the desert, and he stands up, and he's able to drive them away. Kung Fu master, probably. I mean, seriously, he was raised in the greatest fighting military fleet there was that the world had ever seen. So he probably was pretty good with the sword. We don't know if he was, like, spinning the nunchucks. I don't know what he was doing to scare them off if he actually had to fight them what he had to do but he stands up and his presence is such and his authority is such that he's able to drive off this group of you know scary individuals and he it says he saves these women i don't know if he saves their life probably not their life but he saves their honor and he doesn't just do that look what he does next he waters their flock now, in ancient times, it was often the women who would water, uh, give water to the sheep. And so, for Moses, a man, a man who was probably dressed because they recognize him as Egypt, in some still kind of royal Egyptian, again elite-looking dude, even though he's tired and dusty, that he steps down and waters all this sheep, all these sheep for these seven women, and he does it. Seems like he takes care of all of them and honors them in that way. Would have been totally. Counter-cultural. And Moses does it. And so then we'll, look what happens next. When they came home to their father, Ruah, which we'll see his name is also Jethro. It's kind of like calling by his first name or his last name. Um, uh, <laughs> their father said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And, and the daughter said, well, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew, uh, drew water for us and watered the flock. And then their dad said to his daughters, then where is he, right, like every dad everywhere, like, you let him get away, like, what are you doing, there's seven of you, we live in the desert, not a lot of options, and a guy just honored you in all these ways, and you let him get away, what are you doing, it's so human, you gotta see, it's just like, he's like, go find this dude, does he have any friends, (laughs) we will send camels to pick them up, bring them over, like, he's like, wow, this guy watered the sheep for you too? Where is he? Go call him, the text says, that he may eat bread with us. Verse 21, and Moses was content to dwell with the man. That's Jethro-Ruel. And Jethro gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. Moses called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner or an alien in a foreign land. Again, we move pretty quick there. But it's amazing what God does for Moses. After what? Moses failed miserably. We're talking about a premeditated murder in the first degree. And yet this is God's response to Moses. So I want to look at three, three things that God does for Moses after Moses sins. Breaks one of the Ten Commandments. Murders a man, takes his life, doing what? Acting as if he were God, right? God says, this is why God, we'll get to this. This is why God says you should not murder because God says I am the only one that can give and take life. So to take another man's life is to act as God. And Moses in his previous life often acted as God. When you have control issues, that's what it is, acting like God. And there really are only two types of people in the world. Those who trust God and those who act as if they are God. You say, Dave, that seems a little simplistic. There's got to be a spectrum here. It's going to be a little bit more gray. And I'd say, maybe, but I don't think so. You say, well, Dave, there's some people that just totally reject and rebel against God, and, and I get why those people are acting as if they're God, but not, not other people I know. Other people I know respect God, respect God, At times, ask God for his opinion, do like half of the stuff God asks them to do and commands them to do. I say, well, no, that still sounds like acting like God. The second group is just a group of people that has God as a wise counselor, but he ain't sitting on their throne. They're sitting on the throne and they're just inviting the wisdom of God to participate in their lives, to give them counsel when they seek it, when they need it, when they're not quite sure what to do. Thank you, God, I've got it from here. That's still acting as if you are God, even if you respect this God. Only those who allow God to sit on the throne and to do everything that God commands and obeys are trusting God as God. I, I, I hate to be so blunt, But I really do think there's only two types of people in the world. And Moses, even though he was a righteous man, a just man, a compassionate man, a kind man, seeking because he was trying to do it in his own power, was acting as if he were God. And he took a man's life. And even though up to this point in his life, and particularly in the last few months or so, he had acted... In a very profound way, as if he were God, that's Moses acted that way. God still does three things for him. What are those three things? First, and God does this for all of us, by the way, so you might want to write this down God shows great mercy for a murderer. If you take a man's life, God says, I will take your life. And yet, Moses lives. Pharaoh is unable to find Moses. Pharaoh is unable to catch up to Moses. God is sparing Moses' life. Death is the penalty for sin. Moses sinned, and he did not get death. That's mercy. The mercy of the one true God. So that's the first thing. Now, uh, let me pause here. Interestingly, remember I brought up Dostoevsky? Dostoevsky has a very similar story to this. Dostoevsky was a political revolutionary. Um, in his younger years in Russia, he was trying to overthrow the czar, and he was caught, and he was imprisoned, and he was sentenced to death. And Dostoevsky comes out into the courtyard, and the gallows with the noose is hanging there, and he is moments and steps away from dying. We'd never have any of the fantastic, wonderful novels that he has. And for some reason, in that moment, his execution sentence was changed. And he was allowed to live. And he was sent to a Siberian prison. Guess what in Russia Siberia is? The desert. The wilderness. And for four years he serves a term, living in the most vicious, cruel um, prisoner camp in Siberia. And it's there that Dostoyevsky's views changed. And he ends up returning to the views of his youth. He was raised in the church. And he begins to, for the first time, see the truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it changes everything about Dostoevsky. He changes his political views. He's no longer trying to revolt, though he has lots of political things to say. And many of his novels are political commentary. And he's a changed man. No longer does Dostoevsky believe he can be the one to save Russia. He knows that only God can save Russia. It's crazy, the parallel there. But God showed Dostoevsky, like Moses, mercy. And he was not killed for what was an executable crime. Fascinating. So Moses gets mercy, and then what does he get? grace but not the exact same thing mercy is not getting what you deserve or earned which is death grace is getting something that you did not deserve a gift so Moses gets mercy and then he gets grace and when he gets to the other side of the desert God intersects him with a family a new family and he finds his wife at a well and he has a child And he's content, the Bible says, to dwell with this man, Jethro, and his family, and his new wife, Zipporah, and his new son, Gershom. He gets mercy, then he gets grace, a free gift that he didn't deserve. And then he gets one more thing God gives him a new mission. A new mission. Now, we're not going to get there in this text, because this text ends with him content. He's like, I had my chance, I blew it, I failed, I I did not rescue anyone, I just alienated myself and and lost all my power, and he's content with that. He's like, I found life, I'm good, somebody else will do it. He 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 realizes God, you know, uh, we don't know at what level his conception of God was. He has not yet, if you took the pop quiz, he has not yet met God at the burning bush. And the people said, dang it, got that one wrong. If you're not taking the pop quizzes, they're fun. Uh, Get on the email list. And uh, he has not talked to God in that personal way yet, but he is content. And he's received God's mercy and his grace, and he's happy to live there. In fact, let's look at that last verse again. He calls his son Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So basically what this name is, is it sort of sounds like a couple other words. So not super clever. So ger in the language means alien and som means there. So Moses is saying, I am a foreigner, I'm an alien there in a distant land. So I'm going to name my son Gershom so I can always remember that God's grace met me in a foreign land and I started a new life and a new family. And then, as we go on, surprise, God's not done with him. In fact, it takes a while for God to give him his new mission. Probably another 40 years, based on what we can tell. Another 40 years, but then God says, I think I'm ready for you to do what I've always planned for you to do, which is to rescue my people from slavery. Unreal. Consider this the spiritual challenge that was his, that's Moses's. He was a failure as a deliverer of his people, a failure as a citizen of Egypt, unwelcome among either of the nations in that land, whether it's the Hebrew people or the Egyptian people. None of them wanted him. He's a fugitive of the law. And he's now a permanent resident of an obscure place with a nomadic people, alone, far from his origins. However, God's not done with him. I hope that's encouraging to you. If you feel like maybe you've done something and God would never use you now, you sort of missed your chance to do something valuable for the kingdom of God. God's not done. He's not done. It'll go the same way for you. Mercy, and God will put your sin upon the cross of Christ, and he will absorb the penalty for your sin. Mercy, grace, he will then give you new life if you're ready to receive it. By the power of the resurrection, he'll bestow on you a whole new life, a life you couldn't even dream of, that you never could conceive of. You'll find yourself in a type of life, in a type of place that you never thought you'd be before. That's God's grace. That's the symbolism of the well. And you can have life-giving water that never runs dry. That's what Jesus says. He says, I'll be the kind of water that you need for the new life in whatever place that God has brought you that you never thought you'd be. And then he'll give you a new mission. It might be big, it might be small. It's probably somewhere in between. We don't know. But if you'll hear and listen to his voice, receiving his mercy and his grace given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ, you're ready for a new mission. What is it gonna be? But you gotta get content first. You gotta be perfectly content with the mercy and grace that he's already given to you. And if he doesn't give you anything else, you're perfectly content because you have his mercy and his grace all the days of your life. Only then, when you've stopped trying to take control of your own story, will God then insert you powerfully into his story. That's what happens to Moses. So last night, uh, it was, well, let me look at my text because I sent myself a text. I'll tell you exactly what time it was because I know you guys are curious. What time was it? Well, I'll tell you. Maybe. Nope. For some reason, my iPhone sometimes tells me what time, but I guess when you send it to yourself. I think I looked at the clock. It was about uh, 12.15 a.m. I had fallen asleep listening to the book uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's what always puts me to sleep. It's about like a 600-page book (laughs) about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And um, it's taken me about six years to get through because I always fall asleep. And so I'd fallen asleep. And then I was violently woken up after a dream. And here was my dream. I was driving in a car with my wife. Allie was driving the car. I was in the passenger seat. And for some reason, only my youngest son, Owen, was in his car seat in the back. And I don't, I don't know why I was dreaming this, but we were slowly, it felt like we were going so slow, like rolling into like sort of a downtown urban area. And there was rioting happening. And then I heard gunshots and there was people throwing bottles at our car. And Allie sort of like... Um, Deer in the headlight, she, she's just like frozen, and she just keeps sort of going like five miles an hour into more and more the deepness and the darkness of, of, of the rioting, of, of the, the chaos. And I, I'm looking at her. I said, Allie, Allie. And I kind of grab her, and I say, get in the back seat. And, I, and she hops in the back seat, and I hop into uh, the, the driver's seat. And then what appears to me off in the corner is like, it's a very vivid dream. I don't always have this vivid of dreams, this like ramp. That goes up onto a freeway, like it was like 99 or something, right? And it was like a ramp going up to it. And I just see it and I pull a U turn and I go and I head up the ramp. And at that moment, I'm heading up the ramp, I woke up and it was like a data dump and, uh, uh, in my mind. And I literally grabbed my phone and I just started typing a text to myself. I literally have not read the text since I typed it last night. And so, of course, I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> So, apologize if it doesn't make any sense. This is what came into my mind. Perhaps we should then come back to where we began, fighting for justice in an unjust way, or better to say, a naive way. For Dostoevsky, it took 11 years in Siberia, four in a prison camp, to shake him out of his naivete about revolution and see the utter danger which came. Uh, which made him the prophet of prophets in predicting the bloody blunder which was Russia's revolution and selling of his soul to the romantic ideals of utopian, rationalistic, utilitarian socialism of Sovietism. 12:15 a.m. He predicted much of it a century earlier, and he did. He predicted you know, generally speaking, everything that happened in the bloodiest hundred years in Russian history. But it was the up-close and unfiltered look at the depravity and cruelty of mankind that saved him from his youthful error. So too Moses, when confronted with the injustice of slavery and oppression of his own people in his own relative youth and and educated upper-class naivete, he, that's Moses, fell prey to the impulses of heroism, for he had not yet understood the true nature and scope of the evil he was up against. Only with time and perspective and the stripping of his blind messianic complex could he become the man God needed for the messianic foreshadowing role he was to play. He was foreshadowing Jesus. It wasn't until Moses understood the depth of the problem, human sin and evil, that he was ready to trust what we all struggle to trust, namely that we cannot trust ourselves but must in the end cast the fullness of our cares and dreams upon the only Savior and Redeemer of our fallen family, God himself. This God of mercy, grace, and mission is the only being capable of delivering on our utopian impulses and urges, but he will bring us there in such an unexpected, twisting, and wandering way that it will take all of our best to trust him at every step. Moses will ride that roller coaster first for us that we might learn and live through his example or else fall faithlessly into the traps which ensnare every generation of good peoples. I hope that makes sense. Until we understand that what we're up against is so much bigger than we first see we will never turn to God and ask him to save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Prince of Peace, Jesus, we need you now to open our eyes and reveal to us what is not clear to us, that our problem is so much deeper than we think it is. It is a depravity of the human heart, a corruption that is generations deep, that cannot be restored by any man-made power or action, but we need divine intervention. We need God in his power and might to step in on our behalf, but God won't do that until we give up the seat. God, we are all sinners in need of your mercy, grace, and a new mission. God, help each and every one of my friends listening to my voice right now to know that no matter what they've done, they are not disqualified from mercy, grace, and mission. God, that you sent the true, the better Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who lived the life that we could not And never do live. And died the death that we should have died to pay the penalty for our sin and rebellion. And then you brought him back to life, God. And that when we connect to him by trusting him and what he's done and what he said, we have an opportunity to find ourselves in a whole new place. With a whole new life. And a whole new future that we could have never dreamed of. God, I pray if my friends are listening to this right now and they have never trusted in your mercy, grace, and mission, God, would you grant them faith right now to believe, to believe in what you've done for them and then begin walking in trust and faith every step for the rest of their lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray.